0: Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in today. I am joined by Dr. Michael Kornberg. Dr. Kornberg is an assistant professor of neurology and an associate director of the neurology residency program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He specializes in the care of individuals with MS and other autoimmune diseases of the nervous system. In addition to his clinical work, he runs a research program focused on better understanding of MS and identifying therapeutic strategies to prevent neurodegeneration and promote remyelination in people with MS. In today's episode, we talk about the difference between a true relapse and a pseudo-relapse, as well as a true progression of MS versus a pseudo-progression. We also talk about treatment strategies for relapses, thoughts on disease-modifying therapies, and upcoming MS research. Dr. Kornberg, thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: Of course. So I've got a lot of questions for you about relapses and your approach to treating with MS. But before we get to that, do you mind if I ask you a question from my interview deck to help our listeners get to know you a bit better? Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Your question is, do you have a favorite thing you do? for a guys' or a girls' night out? So in your case, a guys' night out.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, um, I don't know what this says about me, but I, I don't have many guys' nights out anymore. I always would prefer to, I'm kind of a homebody. I like to stay home with a family and watch a family movie. That's my favorite thing. I learned to play golf well enough that I can do that for a guys' outing. I'm a big baseball fan, so being in Baltimore, going to Camden Yards is, is always a great option for a guys' day out.
0: Nice. That sounds awesome. Lots of different different variety there, staying home, but also going out. <laughs> awesome. All right. So I first want to ask you what the difference is between a true relapse in MS compared to something that might feel like a relapse, but it isn't. And there's a name for that as well, like a pseudo flare, pseudo relapse. Can you explain to our listeners what the difference is? And also if there's a way to know which one you're having?
1: Yes. So this can be a very confusing topic, and so it's something that's good to spend some time talking about. I'll preface it before I say anything that you know. Hopefully, you have a good enough relationship with your with your neurologist or their team, so that if you ever have any question, you know, it's always a good idea to reach out and and speak with them if you have any concern. But what I tell people is there are several ways in which symptoms can worsen for someone living with MS, and. The language we use, I think is a little bit confusing sometimes. So to your neurologist, the term relapse means when you are having a new attack of inflammation somewhere in your nervous system, in your brain or your spinal cord, or those nerves that carry vision from your eye to your brain. And when that happens, those are the sorts of attacks that respond to steroids and that leave a new lesion, a new spot we can see on MRI. And, you know, typically, you know, what I tell people, so we use, you know, what we call the 24 hour rule, which is pretty conservative. So, you know, the way that relapses happen in MS is it takes the immune system is attacking somewhere in the brain. And that inflammation builds up usually over several days to a week. And then even without steroids, that inflammation will resolve and symptoms will improve. But the time course is at least 24 hours, but generally much longer than that. So, I always have the 24 hour rule, meaning if you have any new symptom that lasts for 24 hours, then that's not a a relapse. And that's not something that you have to worry. means that your MS is active in that sort of inflammatory sense. Beyond that, there are other ways that symptoms can worsen. So what I tell people is when you have existing problems, existing symptoms from MS, it is common that if there's some other stress to your system that those symptoms will worsen a bit. So for instance, you already have weakness in your right leg and now you catch a cold or you know it's hot outside or you're under a lot of stress you're sleep deprived it's very common for that symptom of right leg weakness to get a little bit worse than it was before and the reason it's important to make that distinction is because that's not related to inflammation steroids are not going to help that situation and if anything they can make it worse you know if you have a urinary tract infection and that's what's causing your symptoms to be worse you know, the steroids can actually cause that infection to bloom. And so, you know, what I tell people is your brain, when you're healthy, can compensate for injury, but something knocks you off your horse and those symptoms can can be a little worse. You know, then there's also, you know, what we call progression. And I think that that is really tough for people to kind of formulate in their heads. And, you know, for some people, particularly that have had MS for a long time, their their symptoms can progressively slowly worsen, even without any new inflammation. And the way that I describe that to people is that we know that in MS, the problem is that those nerve cells lose that myelin coating, that insulation, which helps them transmit signals, but also provides nutrients and other things that keep them healthy. And so when someone has had the lack of this myelin coating for years and years, those nerve cells can start to work less well over time. And again, you know, that's not related to inflammation and it's a different process that we have to deal with differently. And then the final thing I'll say, because I know I've already been, you know, probably talking too much is what we call pseudo progression. So, you know, we talked about a relapse, then we talked about symptoms worsening when you have an illness or something else. That's what we call pseudo relapse. Then there's progression. There's also pseudo progression. And the way that I view that, which is, particularly relevant during this pandemic, is kind of a, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it kind of situation. So people that already have existing problems from their MS that now are more sedentary, more isolated, because, you know, during the pandemic, they're not able to get out as much and do those things. Those problems that they have can worsen over time simply because they're not keeping up with their activity. And that's what I call pseudo progression.
0: Wow. And that is so common since COVID. I can't tell you, I would say every person with MS that I've spoken to really in the last year and a half has said that they feel like they've progressed because they haven't been moving as much. And I think that's a good distinction there if it's actual progression versus pseudo progression.
1: Yeah. Well, I've had, you know, I'm not a physical therapist, but I've had exactly the same experience with the people that I see that it's almost universal. You know, even people that have been Stable for a long time before the pandemic, feel like things were worse. And it's tricky. It's tricky to kind of parse out, you know, how much is, is simply from not moving and how much is real progression.
0: Yeah. So, what are your thoughts on that? Do you feel that, let's say you've identified that in this specific person, uh, that it is a pseudo progression? So, it's not actually a progression of the disease. Do you feel like if they start doing healthy habits again and they start making sure they're eating right and exercising more do you feel like they can get back to where they were before the pandemic
1: yeah no i absolutely do and you know that's the advice i have been giving to so many uh, of my patients is that for so many people that have had that experience particularly the ones that i described were they were pretty stable before the pandemic and now they just feel like things are worse. There's no reason to think that you can't get back to the level where you were before. And you will probably like this take, but you know, I, I tell people that there's really no way to underestimate the role of physical activity and physical therapy. And people are oftentimes very skeptical and then in retrospect, amazed, you know, when they either do formal physical therapy or they, you know, kind of get back to an exercise routine and start eating right and they feel better again. They feel back to the way they were. I see that quite commonly. So absolutely.
0: Right. Yeah. So when someone has no new lesions, but they do feel like they're progressing, if that was someone who had relapsing remitting MS, is it just safe to say that we can assume that they now have secondary progressive or could something else be happening?
1: Yeah. So, so something else could be happening. When that exact sort of person, you know, comes to see me, the inflammation part of their disease has been stable. They have no new lesions on their MRI, nothing, you know, consistent with the relapse, but things are getting worse. I view my first goal to make sure we're not missing any low hanging fruit, you know, missing some other factor that's causing them to worsen. And we've talked about a lot of those things already in terms of, are they less active? Are they not, are they not moving as much? Have things changed in their diet? Are there other medical problems that are going on? All of those things that can kind of take someone who's up here and bring them down a notch that has nothing to do with their disease. You know, once those things are ruled out and then as a function of time, because people with ms even if we can't identify a specific trigger for why things are worse it's not uncommon for people you know at one visit to be a little bit worse and then you know to have rebounded by the next visit and so to really feel comfortable that someone is experiencing progression not only do you have to rule out other factors that are contributing but you also have to see it sustained over time. I mean, that's really the definition of progression and you, you can't really define it in shorter than one year. And so, you know, I feel comfortable that someone is progressing when I'm confident there's no other factor involved and you, you see the consistency over at least six months, but really, you know, more than a, than a year.
0: Gotcha. And when it comes to a pseudo progression or pseudo relapse, would it ever be a brand new symptom that they haven't experienced before? Or is it always something that they have experienced as one of their MS symptoms?
1: Yeah, another great point. So, as a general rule, uh, pseudo relapse, pseudo progression, should involve worsening of an existing symptom because if it's if it's brand new then that does raise my suspicion for a relapse for a true relapse and you know there are of course exceptions to that sometimes you know someone has just a little bit of dysfunction in some way that maybe you know they don't even notice because it doesn't impact them in a functional way on a daily basis but then something else hits them and that symptom is a little worse and now they notice it so it's not really new, it's just not something they've noticed on a regular basis. Sometimes it's a new symptom that is not really directly related to MS. So people will often attribute migraines or joint pain to MS and those things aren't directly related to MS. But I think kind of along those lines, what might happen is someone who let's say has right-sided weakness, now, because they're compensating and they're walking, now they develop pain or some dysfunction in the left leg that's not MS related, but it's kind of a product of them trying to compensate for their injury. And so that's new, but it's not MS related. And so there are some nuances there, but as a general rule, the relapse is most often going to be a new symptom you haven't had before. And pseudo relapse, pseudo progression is going to be some worsening of symptoms that you've had for a while.
0: Okay, awesome. That's good to know. So when it comes to when to reach out to the neurologist, you have already mentioned that with a pseudo relapse, usually it's a day or so it's nothing long term. So do you have a guide of wait 24 hours or 48 hours? Or what are your thoughts on when someone should actually reach out? Or if there's something they could do at home instead? Yeah.
1: So I do tell people the 24 hour rule of thumb. So any symptom that lasts for less than 24 hours is, is not something you have to be concerned about. That doesn't mean that I don't want anyone to reach out to me if they're having a symptom less than 24 hours. Obviously, if something significant is happening, you can't see it in through one eye or, you know, all of a sudden you can't walk, that's a different story. But if there's some new symptom that's not severe, you certainly can give it the, the 24 hours. And if it goes away before then, It's not something you have to worry about. If it's been longer than 24 hours, then I'd like you to reach out to me so that we can talk about it. As I'm sure that you've experienced, nobody with MS knows themselves better than themselves, right? And so, you know, especially people that have had MS for a while, they know what their triggers for for pseudo relapse are. And so they spend a day out in the heat. They know that things are going to be worse for a couple of days thereafter. And so part of what I'd like to do is help people identify those triggers so that they can start to feel comfortable with things are worse, recognizing that it's something they've experienced before and what the trigger is and they know it's going to get better. And so it's not always that a pseudo relapse lasts for 24 hours or less. It's just that typically there's a clear trigger and it's usually something not new to them that things worsen in that scenario.
0: Yeah. And I think knowing your triggers can be such an empowering thing, especially for those that are newly diagnosed or maybe just new to having triggers. I have several clients as I'm sure you do too, where heat intolerance was never an issue for them right. until one summer. Eventually now it is an issue. Yeah. And I think that being able to determine what your triggers are, it, it almost gives you control back. And so you don't have to freak out. You just remove the trigger and it'll come back eventually. Yep. Absolutely.
1: So. Couldn't, couldn't agree more.
0: So I'm curious, and of course, I'll preface this by saying that every neurologist, every doctor is different, but I'm curious as to what your treatment strategies are for relapses, as well as for just disease management as a whole. So when it comes to relapses, what are some things that you tend to consider for your clients?
1: If I'm convinced that someone is having a relapse, and again, this means, you know, new inflammation somewhere in their nervous system, then I generally do treat with steroids. And the important things to know there are that this is not kind of low-dose steroids. Sometimes a primary care doctor will prescribe a Medrol dose pack or something like that, you know, so that's been shown, you know, not to be enough. And so we're talking about high-dose steroids that can either be given through an IV or we know now that you can do it orally, but with high doses. So you know, unfortunately for prednisone, that means 25 pills per day for three days, which can be tough for people. But generally speaking, my practice is to treat with steroids unless there's good reasons not to. And so big picture wise, we know that steroids hasten recovery. So they shorten the duration of a relapse. There's never been good evidence that they change the long-term outcome, you know, meaning six, six months down the line, you're not likely to be any different whether you were treated with steroids or not. And so whether we do steroids or not depends on how severe the relapse is, whether someone has had any issues with steroids in the past. Some people just don't feel good when they've taken them, they can't sleep. You know, do they have diabetes or something that could be made worse? By it. And so we take those factors into account, but generally that's my practice. But more important than even than, than that, you know, what you do during a, a relapse is getting someone onto a, a disease modifying therapy that can control their disease, that can control the, the inflammatory aspect of it. Because you know these days we are in, in many ways in a fortunate place where we have a huge armamentarium of ms therapies you know some of which are extremely effective at preventing relapses and so in the era of ms where we live in now no relapse is really acceptable in my view because we we have therapies that can prevent them and and we have very good evidence that by preventing relapses with these therapies we can prevent or delay disability in very significant ways and so i kind of try to emphasize that in terms of what's going to impact you in the long term is your disease modifying therapy that is meant to prevent these relapses from happening in the first place.
0: And that's a very exciting way to view it as well with what you just said that relapses don't have to be a thing. You know, if you're on the right medication or right combination of treatments for you, then you don't have to have relapses.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I'm seeing someone who's being newly diagnosed with MS, which obviously is a very difficult situation for, you know, for anyone, particularly because it's a disease of young people who were a couple months before were healthy, didn't have, you know, care in the world about their health. It's very challenging to kind of come to grips of, with that. And, and I can try to tell people that even though I don't want to lighten or dismiss the weight of that, or, you know, all the other things that come with MS, but, you know, on the other hand, people who are being newly diagnosed, you can strike a very optimistic tone for that reason, because it's not the same sort of disease course that we saw 20 plus years ago. And so and that's absolutely true.
0: What are your thoughts on some of the more holistic approaches such as acupuncture, CBD. There's so many different things that people can do in that realm. Is that something that you often suggest in addition to disease-modifying therapies or other medicines, or do you not really play in that world? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, no,
1: I try not to view the world of MS care as kind of separate worlds, you know, honestly. The conversation I have with people is that, to me, the distinctions between Western medicine, holistic medicine, these sorts of things are are very artificial. And, you know, ultimately, what I care about is evidence and safety. So if you're going to tell me that some intervention, you know, has some specific effect, I want to be convinced of that by some level of evidence. And, you know, then on top of that, there's not evidence there at least has to be safety and so from the more holistic approach there's some things that we know for sure right so there's a very strong association between smoking and disability and ms and we know that people who are overweight tend to not do as well as people who aren't overweight we know that people who get a moderate amount of aerobic exercise do better than people who don't and so the first thing that i say is that same prescription for healthy living that we would give anybody is particularly important for MS. And so that is eating right, getting exercise, not smoking, making sure that you're managing any other potential health problems because we know that, you know, people with high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, you know, they don't do as well. And so, you know, let's think of your health in that kind of general sense. When I'm not seeing patients, I also have a research program. And one of my interests is how diet and metabolism impact the immune system. And so I have a special interest there and I'm convinced that there's a the connection. The difficulty is that right now we don't know, you know what specific diet is, is particularly good for MS and, and you know what is bad for MS. And so a lot of my patients will get quite worried because they'll read on the internet that this diet is anti-inflammatory. This diet is pro-inflammatory. They have to avoid this food. They have to eat lots of that. And most of that goes about a thousand miles beyond what we actually have evidence for. And so at this point, you know, what we know for sure is that a generally healthy diet, meaning less processed foods, high in fruits and vegetables, you know, is the best you can do for MS. And so if someone really wants to follow a specific diet, at this point, I still recommend the Mediterranean diet for MS, because it's it's the only diet that we have good evidence has broad benefits for health, heart health and brain health. For other elements that fall into that holistic category, like acupuncture or CBD that you mentioned, what I tell people is, for instance, with acupuncture, do we have large, well-controlled, SIBO-controlled studies for the effect of acupuncture? No, but it's a very safe procedure. And, and so if someone wants to give it a try, particularly people with pain as a big element of their MS, I am all for it because there's no downside to it. And if someone experiences a benefit, that's fantastic. And with some of the other products, I kind of take the same approach. So CBD is different because CBD is not psychoactive like the other components of other cannabinoids. So I, I don't have any issue with people trying CBD for some of the THC containing products i have the conversation with them that you should view it no differently than anything else you put in your body and so there's actually very good evidence that cannabinoid products have benefit for spasticity and pain in ms i mean that's clear at the same time you know just like anything else you might take there are potential side effects as well and so cognitive slowing, sedation, you know that sort of thing. And so as long as you kind of go into it with that same mindset that there's benefit but there might be a downside and you weigh those pros and cons, then I'm all for that as well.
0: Yeah, and I think one thing that you're mentioning that I think is something that can feel challenging about MS but also hopeful at the same time is that it is so different for each person. If you have heard of someone who tried acupuncture and it didn't work at all, that doesn't mean that it's not going to work for you. So, you know, just as you mentioned too, what I usually suggest is as long as there's no negative side effects, you never know, no matter what you've heard from other people who have tried it.
1: Yeah. Could not agree more.
0: Yeah. So do you have anything currently in research just that you've been reading or doing yourself that really excites you about MS research world?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. One of the things that I love about taking care of MS as a, as a clinician scientist is that on the one hand, there have been so many advances in MS, uh, you know, really even just over the last 10 years that there's so much we can offer people who have the disease, but at the same time, there are big unanswered questions and, and opportunities to further improve the lives of people with the disease. So there's a few. So I mentioned already that one of my big interests is understanding how diet and metabolism impact the immune system. And I think we're finally getting to a place where we have the tools and the interest to really understand what the potential mechanisms might be by which certain diets might impact the immune system and, and actually test them in a rigorous way in, in people. I mean that's something that the world of nutrition has kind of lacked to this point is really rigorous studies of diet with proper control groups so that we actually can draw conclusions about it. And we're getting to that point. And so that's some of the work that I do is both in the research lab, understanding how some of these diets work in, in animals and cell culture, but then also translating that to you know to people and studying in real people as well. So one of the big interests in MS is we have all of these therapies that stop new lesions from forming. And so you know I describe that to people as the goal right now is to stop any more damage from happening. You know, But what we don't have is anything that clearly promotes repair of the damage that's already been done. In some ways, for someone with MS, those new treatments can't come fast enough. And so there's an understandable level of frustration. But from my perspective as a researcher, I look back at the last five, 10 years, and I feel like we've made so much more progress kind of towards that goal. Because I would say even 10 years ago, our understanding about why myelin repair doesn't happen was kind of so much worse off than we are now. And we understand the biology of it much better now than we did before. And so those preclinical studies have advanced to a point where I feel like over the next five to 10 years we're going to have some real shots on goal. It's going to be kind of bumpy and slow in terms of finding something that translates to real people. But I, I do think that that we're going to get there. And so that's something else that I'm excited about.
0: Yeah, that's super exciting. And I agree. I've been a physical therapist for almost nine years and an MS specialist for almost seven. And just in the last seven years alone, there have been so many advancements in different areas, but especially medication and therapies for MS. So just in seven years, we've come far. I can't imagine the next seven. Do you have any estimates as to if you think there would be a remyelination therapy or drug, whatever it ends up being in this lifetime now, or is it going to be something really far away? Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, it's a tricky question, right? Um, you know, especially when it's recorded, you run the risk of looking like a fool, you know, at, at some point. But having said that, I would cautiously say there's not going to be something on the market in the next few years. It's definitely not in, in that ballpark. Some of the, the therapies that are being advanced in the pipeline for myelin repair, we're not at a point right now where we have something kind of in the the last stage of clinical studies. There have been a few over the past several years that have made it to that stage and unfortunately just had disappointing results in in those large studies at the phase three level. But there's a lot that's kind of at that transition from the lab to people, those early clinical studies. And so again, this is a cautious rough estimate with that caveat in mind. So certainly I think there's going to be something in this lifetime and I think it's going to be better than that. I mean, if I had to kind of put my money down, I would say in 10 years time, there will be something that is approved for myelin repair. The first steps are not going to be a miracle. So, you know, you have to kind of have cautious expectations, but in terms of something, you know, that can promote repair, you know, to an extent, I'm certainly hopeful that there will be something kind of within the 10 year frame, and it's going to be the same rule that we have with the disease modifying therapies, that they're going to work better the earlier you start them in the, the disease course. You know, unfortunately, people that have had MS for 30, 40 years and have very advanced disability, it's not just lack of myelin anymore. You also have some degeneration of nerve cells. And, and that is something that we really don't have a lot of traction on. You know, how do we kind of bring those back from the dead, so to speak? And so the goal is still going to be to start these treatments early. But it's a long-winded way of saying that I'm hopeful that within 10 years, there will be something on the market.
0: Awesome. And I appreciate you answering that. I know it's a really tricky question. What are your thoughts on BTK inhibitors? There's several trials going on now. Okay. A, a lot of people still don't really know what they are. Can you let our listeners know what it is and if that gives you any type of hope? Because it does seem different from any other current disease-modifying therapy.
1: Yeah, It's a great question. So BTK inhibitors. So the BTK stands for Bruton's tyrosine kinase, which is a protein that's on different cells that we can talk about. I am, I would say, cautiously optimistic or somewhat intrigued by them. I'll I'll put it that way for a couple of reasons. So basically these are drugs that, that impact the way certain immune cells become activated and they do seem like they will likely have a good effect on preventing relapses. They're not going to be more effective than our most effective current therapies because our most effective current therapies are actually very highly effective right now, but I think they are going to be at least in the intermediate to high category in terms of how good they are preventing relapses and they may have some safety advantages over other therapies, which is an exciting part. So unlike some therapies where the effect is very long lasting, you know, even after you stop the drug, these are kind of more fast on fast off. And so if someone were to have a complication of therapy, it's kind of very easy to to take someone off, you know, in terms of infection risk and and that sort of thing. So I I think that there's going to be a role in, in terms of kind of the traditional treatment approach of preventing relapses. What's more exciting about them, you know, which is kind of the reason for my cautious excitement is that some of them are brain penetrant, you know, so that's a big problem with medicines in, in general is that a lot of medications don't cross into the brain. There's kind of a special barrier between the blood and the brain that's meant to protect the brain called the blood-brain barrier. And so a lot of drugs don't get in there. And so not only does some of the BTK inhibitors get into the brain, they also target certain cells that live in the brain that we think are important in progressive MS. And so the reason that current therapies don't have an impact on progressive MS, we think a good part of it is that a lot of them don't get into the brain and they're not acting on the right cells because the cells that are important in relapses are different than what's important in progressive MS. And, And the BTK inhibitors, they target some cells that we think are important in progressive MS. They're currently being tested in progressive MS. And so that's really the reason for my excitement about them is that, you know, I think there's a legitimate chance that they could do something in in that realm. But again, it's cautious optimism at this point.
0: I love that phrase. I should probably start using that because I I often will say like, oh, BTK inhibitors are so exciting. But I like the cautious excitement because it is true. We don't know yet. They're still in clinical trials. So I'm gonna take that term from you.
1: <laughs> no, no problem. I probably overuse it to be honest, but so you can you can take it.
0: Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to let our listeners know that you feel like maybe a lot of people with MS don't hear often enough or maybe don't know that you feel they should know?
1: It's a great question. So I think an important one was was something we talked about just understanding the the difference between relapses and pseudo relapses and you know kind of how that changes over the lifespan. I think another one is I touched on this before, and I promise I'm not trying to to butter you up, but that, you know, physical activity and physical therapy can just go such a long way towards improving someone's function and and not just their physical function, you know, but also some of the, the other symptoms of MS that can be most frustrating for people, you know, such as fatigue. It's really frustrating for people because fatigue, depression, anxiety, you know, those aspects of MS that are very much part of the disease they're not tightly correlated with kind of the inflammation part of your disease. So your relapses could have been controlled, your MRI could be stable for years, and you might still struggle with fatigue. And while there are medications for fatigue, the evidence is that they don't actually work very well. And and what's been shown to to be the most beneficial is maintaining a moderate level of physical activity. And people oftentimes don't believe me when I say that until they've started their own exercise routine or they've started doing physical therapy and they notice that they're actually feeling a lot better. And so physical therapy can go such a long way. I mean, that's one of my secrets of MS, I guess.
0: Yeah, I love hearing you say that too, because so many people feel like exercise and physical therapy is counterintuitive. One thing I hear all the time is, well, I'm so fatigued, how am I supposed to participate in PT? you know, or how can that help? So it does sound and feel counterintuitive, but as you're saying, research does show it's a really effective way to help manage fatigue. Yeah, so along those
1: lines, I'd actually be interested to hear, you know, how you answer that question, because I get that from patients all the time. And, you know, I, I basically say that the goal is to kind of find the place where you're, you're getting enough exercise without pushing yourself, you know, over that cliff where you know, you're going to be no good for the next couple of days. But I think it'd be really helpful to hear your take on that.
0: Yeah. So what I typically remind them is first that the research does show that it is helpful because I think sometimes just knowing that you can relax a little bit and feel like, okay, maybe it is doable for me, even though it doesn't feel like it. So that's the first thing, but there's a lot of research showing that light exercise is the type that you should be doing when you're struggling with fatigue. And I love pointing that out because we all grow up thinking exercise means a certain thing. It means running and the stairmaster and yeah. squats and jumping jacks. And it doesn't have to be that. So what I try to do is have them reframe what exercise actually means and understanding that seated exercises that you can do at the edge of your bed count as exercise. Yeah. Or if you're on your couch, there's easy, sim- no, not easy, I shouldn't say that. There's simple movements that you can do to help manage your fatigue. It doesn't need to mean get up and go for a walk. So that's usually how I try to explain it to people. Yeah, I, I like that.
1: That's very helpful.
0: <laughs> Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. So if someone is listening to this and feels really inspired by you and they are interested in working with you, whether that's as one of your patients or research, how can they find you and where should they go? Yeah,
1: so uh, so I am on Twitter as at MD Kornberg, and the D is my middle name. It's not a medical doctor, Kornberg. And we have a research website, which is just Kornberglab.com. But I think more broadly, if you're interested in research, particularly what's going on in Johns Hopkins, if you just Google the Johns Hopkins Multiple Sclerosis Center, we have a Precision Medicine Center of Excellence uh, and also uh, what we call Project Restore, which is the research wing of the MS Center. And,
0: And you can find us by Googling those. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll put those in the show notes as well. So if anyone's interested, you can look there. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here with us and explaining all of that. I get questions so often from my clients about relapses and pseudo relapses and what everything means. And I think you did such a great job at explaining that. So I appreciate your time and your expertise.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I enjoyed it very much.